Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Tuesday, the 28th of September. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Annika Smethers. Hey, Annika. Hey, Tom, and stick around for today's briefing episode. We're speaking to the former fire chief who spoke out before the devastating black summer bushfires, warning that it could happen at the time the PM wouldn't even meet with him. Yeah, and now uh, Greg Mullins is speaking out again. We have a crisis now. They're coming thick and fast. The fire season's uh, more frequent now. They're not 10 years apart. They're more like four to six years apart, and they're far worse than they've ever been. We have to dial down the heat. Yeah, sobering warning from Greg Mullins, the former New South Wales Fire Chief. He's our guest in our briefing later in the episode. First, here are the big news stories of today. Dust off your passports if you're in New South Wales or wanting to get home from overseas. The New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian has said she aims to restart international travel in December. By the 1st of December, we'll be at that COVID normal state where hopefully also we'll be booking our international travel once the PM gives the green light. I don't want it to be the case that I'll be able to go overseas before I'll be able to go to Perth. Yeah, well, she says uh, international travel will hopefully only require a seven-day home quarantine on return and that will happen when New South Wales hits uh, 90% double dose in December. Travel between Victoria and New South Wales will now also resume earlier than expected. It will be on November 5. But as she hinted there, flying to Perth might not be possible until February. And Qantas are no longer doing the London to Perth direct flight because of WA's tough border restrictions. The news from New South Wales came as the state government released its plan for relaxing the restrictions at both the 80% and 90% double vaccination mark. At 80%, which is expected to be reached around October 25, the cap on visitors to homes will be increased to 10. Community sport can resume. Caps on hospitality, retail, weddings and funerals will be removed. But there'll still be that four square metre rule inside and the two square metre rule outside. Yeah, the big disappointment um, was that travel between Sydney and the regions, which was expected to start next Monday at 70% vaccination, will now be pushed back to 80%, which is October 25. And there was also disappointment for the unvaccinated. The strongest message to those that are unvaccinated is you're going to have to wait weeks and weeks and weeks. In fact, you're going to have to wait several months before you can do anything. Unvaccinated people will have to wait until the state hits that 90% threshold in December before they can have the freedoms that everybody else will get from next Monday. So almost two months later. Yeah, what's it like watching this unfold in New South Wales from Victoria, Annika? Uh, A little bit in between. I guess our Premier's uh, now making it clear, which wasn't necessarily the case for a while, that COVID zero isn't achievable. So we do expect to open up and have cases. Having said that, the road out is a little bit slower. We have to wait until we hit the 80% mark uh, to get the freedoms that you get at 70%, some of them anyway. And we're not expected to get there until November 5. So a little bit longer, but uh, I'd prefer to be here than Perth, given that news, Tom. Well, they've got a lot of freedom now, but yes, yeah, certainly their travel will be restricted for quite some time. I think a lot of people in Perth will probably accept that trade-off, but it could change once the, the world sort of, I guess, changes around them. And the UK is continuing to be gripped by a fuel shortage caused by a perfect storm of Brexit, COVID and an ageing workforce. Yeah, those three factors are leading to a shortage of truck drivers to transport the fuel uh, and that means petrol stations are running low. Uh, thousands of petrol stations have run dry over the past few days. 
after some panic buying by motorists. The British government has started offering temporary visas to 5,000 foreign truck drivers in a bid to limit disruption in the build-up to Christmas. I noticed some criticism from the Europeans saying these shortages in Britain show the intellectual bankruptcy of Brexit. Prime Minister Scott Morrison hasn't committed to going to that Glasgow Climate Summit in November as the government continues to be divided on net zero targets. Yeah, the PM's told the Western Australian newspaper the summit will come as Australia's opening up from lockdown and that might require extra leadership here at home, which is why he might not go. The Foreign Minister Maurice Payne and Climate Change Minister Angus Taylor could be the ministers representing us there. Greens leader Adam Bant has hit out at the PM for not committing to attend the conference, saying it sends a bad message to other countries. Scott Morrison's failure to attend shows the contempt that he holds Australia's children's and future generations in. The CIA floated the idea of abducting WikiLeaks whistleblower Julian Assange, according to a report published by Yahoo News. The investigation, which relies on interviews from 30 former US officials, reports that the Trump administration raised the prospect of kidnapping Assange from that Ecuadorian embassy where he was evading possible charges. And several officials interviewed in this report actually claim that there was even a plot to assassinate Julian Assange. Uh, The report claims the CIA was enraged by WikiLeaks' 2017 publication of thousands of documents detailing the agency's hacking and surveillance techniques known as the Vault 7 leak. It claims the CIA, under the direction of Mike Pompeo, hatched the plan over fears the Aussie was preparing to sneak out of the Ecuadorian embassy, possibly in a laundry basket, and be whisked away to Russia on a diplomatic passport. Trump has denied this report, saying it's totally false. And R&B star R. Kelly has been found guilty by a New York jury of racketeering and sex trafficking. The 54-year-old's been facing trial since last month, accused of running a criminal enterprise that recruited his accusers for unwanted sex. Multiple witnesses in the trial alleged Kelly subjected them to perverse and brutal treatment while they were underage in a scheme that stretched back more than two decades. Wow, that's horrific. All right, in a moment we're talking bushfires with Greg Mullins. When the bushfires were engulfing the East Coast in late 2019, a powerful voice emerged into the national debate. Earlier that year, he tried to warn the government about what was to come and then tragically his prediction came true. His name is Greg Mullins. Um, He's someone who had held a hose, Annika, for decades. Yeah, and eventually he rose to become the Commissioner of the New South Wales Fire and Rescue Service. Greg Mullins is a former Fire and Rescue New South Wales Commissioner. Part of the group of former fire chiefs who warned of catastrophic fire risk ahead of the summer's fires. If this is how it is now, this is driven by climate change, imagine what future generations are up against. So Greg Mullins has now written a book sharing his decades of experience fighting fires and predicting the frightening scenario to come as the planet continues to warm. His book is called Firestorm. Greg, thanks for joining us on The Briefing. You grew up on the bushy northern edge of Sydney. Tell us about your childhood and how your experiences then shaped your career. Yeah, I grew up at Terry Hills and we were surrounded by National Park. So look, fires were just part of growing up and it was through the early 1960s. We are always in the bush. Mum and Dad were environmentalists. They understood the bush. Dad was a volunteer firefighter. So 
when there was smoke on the horizon, there was no dad because he was out on the local fire truck. And it was a wonderful place to grow up because there were creeks, there were yabbies in the creeks and tortoises and just incredible. So I grew up with a deep love of the environment. But I think it was pretty inevitable. I was going to follow dad into being a firefighter. You've obviously lived through and seen some of the biggest fires in Australia, Ash Wednesday in 83, the Canberra fires, Black Saturday in Victoria in 2009. So over the years, how have you seen the nature and the frequency of bushfires changing? We know that living here, there's somewhat of an inevitability that we will have fires, but how have they shifted? They were predictable that were a part of the landscape. Australia's landscape was shaped by fire. It's the second driest continent after Antarctica. But the bushland is adapted to fire. There's always been fire there. So you could understand back in the 60s and the 70s and 80s, the fire seasons in around Sydney were about a decade apart. So that meant that's how often the really bad fire weather patterns came through. You could pick it up. Dad used to look at certain types of trees and flowers and what time they bloomed and say, oh, this is going to be a bad year. And if there was drought in the mix, you knew. And all you needed was the strong winds and the temperatures. That started to change in the 90s. And I remember vividly the 93, 94 fires that I speak about this in the book. And we'd written off the fire season as in thinking nothing to worry about because it rained heavily in November. But then it just stopped raining. And the patterns were quite different to anything we'd had before. And the first week of 1994, it just dried out. It was hot, windy, and the whole state was ablaze. And that got me thinking. That's when I started to study it and say, what's gone wrong? And I remember Dad saying, I I didn't pick this one. So by the time we get to 2019, You've been studying uh, the changing nature of bushfires and the impact of climate change for years. You'd retired from your job as the emergency fire chief in New South Wales and you brought together a group of other former emergency service chiefs and you actually wrote to the Prime Minister warning him of what might happen and then it started happening. Tell us about the alarm that you sounded and the response to it. Yes, this came after the the 2018 fire season was... We thought that we'd be smashed in 2018. Fires started on the New South Wales south coast all the way up to Port Stephens near Newcastle in August, early August, and the fire season's supposed to start in October. Um, We were losing houses in early August. Luckily for New South Wales, it rained, but Queensland didn't have it so good. They got a really serious fire season and Tasmania. So things were burning that had never burnt before. Tropical rainforest in the north, wet rainforest in Tasmania. So I got together, talked to all my former colleagues, and every single one of them were saying the same thing, saying this is really, really serious, something's wrong here. So we formed a coalition, 23 initially, there's 34 of us now, former urban and rural fire service chiefs, every fire service in Australia. We wrote to Scott Morrison and asked for a meeting. We wrote twice, actually. That was in March and April, I think it was. Eventually got a letter back in July that didn't say much. And then um, it wasn't until September when there was some media agitation that he sent, I think it was an email from his office saying, I've asked Angus Taylor to speak to you. So it wasn't 
until I think December that we actually got to speak to anybody and it was just too late. Hundreds and hundreds of homes had gone by then and we were ridiculed, as you know, in the media by um, politicians. They just didn't want to know because we were talking about climate change. You obviously wanted more action ahead of that 2019-2020 devastating bushfire season. How much could have they done with a few months' notice? Was this something we really needed to get onto earlier? I guess I'm wondering, in the lead-up, what were you hoping they would have achieved in terms of climate change to do something about that immediate threat? No, look, Annika, nothing about climate change at that point in time. But what we were saying as very experienced fire chiefs, um, a thousand years of experience nearly in the group, was you need to look at the business case from 2018 that the, the fire chiefs, existing fire chiefs, virtually begged the government to, to put, I think it was um, $11 million extra into getting large firefighting aircraft because there are not enough in Australia and all of the large firefighting aircraft were leased from the US or Canada and we just didn't have enough. So they ignored that business case. We warned that they'd need the military, the logistics and engineering support of the military and that the processes were cumbersome and slow and not up to the task. We warned about recovery. They needed to up the recovery mechanism. So there was a whole lot of practical stuff the federal government could have done and they hid behind the constitution and said emergency management is the responsibility of the states and territories. And to this day, I don't understand it because when the media turned on the government, they poured money into it, but it was late December 2019, early January 2020, and it was too late. A lot of those aircraft they paid for never dropped water on a fire. They didn't get here in time. So I guess there's really two issues when we talk about fire. There's, you know, the short-term impacts, which you could see building up before a season and the need to react more promptly to those. And then the longer-term issues around climate change and how we deal with that. I just wanted to go back to the excuse the government used about federation. We've seen this throughout the pandemic too, states and federal government bickering. Do you think after the bushfires and after the pandemic, we've perhaps now got a reason to sort out some of these issues between state and federal governments and perhaps overhaul who manages what? Look, definitely. And the Royal Commission gave a roadmap for that to update how we deal with national emergencies and to change some legislation. And they are doing some of the, the things that were recommended. But look, I'll come back to the fundamental thing that the other emergency chiefs and I were saying is we have a crisis now. They're coming thick and fast. The fire seasons are more frequent now. They're not 10 years apart. They're more like four to six years apart and they're far worse than they've ever been. We have to dial down the heat. We have to do our bit internationally to try to keep warming to 1.5 degrees and then try to drive it down over the next century. It's for our grandkids and their kids. If we don't do this, there's a lot of scientific studies saying that fires like Black Summer will be common. That'll be a normal fire season by 2040. And by 26, it'll be a mild fire season. So imagine wow. that. So you're saying within 20 years, this could be happening every year rather than every 10 years like it used to or every five or six years like you think it might be now? 
Yeah, the sort of the hottest, driest year ever recorded in Australia, 2019, those weather conditions will be average by 2040 and exceedingly cool by 2060. So we're having heat waves now that just nudging 50 degrees. We could be having heat waves up near 60 degrees by 2060. And I don't even know how you go outside to fight mm. fires in that heat. And mm. I can't mm. imagine the fire behaviour that you'd get. So, Greg, you kind of threw yourself into a, a hectic political football match when you spoke up at this time during the Black Summer bushfires. And most of us had never heard of you, but because you'd put together this group and warned the federal government of what was to come and then it happened, you suddenly become a very credible and strong voice in this argument about how we should have responded in the short term, but also those longer term climate change issues. And and I guess what many people see is uh, an underwhelming response to that from the coalition. Did you realise that you were stepping into such a, a difficult space because you ended up getting so much backlash from conservative commentators and for a time in the Murdoch press, but it seemed like eventually a lot of Australians were on your side and and saw you as, I guess, a credible voice standing up to the Prime Minister who didn't seem to know how to respond. It was a shame. I wish that the government had listened and rather than just dismissed us and that sort of catapulted us into the limelight and, and it became a political issue. We spoke up during a national election, so it was seen as being political, but we don't make the timing of fire seasons. That's when we needed to speak up. And it had to be done. And look, frankly, I've spent my life on fire fronts and rescuing people from car crashes and fighting fires in California and some commentators calling me names in a right-wing newspaper or TV show, really, sticks and stones. Um, (laughs) I don't care. We all know how awful those last bushfires were in 2019 and 20, but in many ways it slipped from people's mind because of the pandemic. You speak about the intensity of blazes being bigger if we allow climate change to get out of control. So I wondered, in your opinion, you warn of mega blazes under El Nino, how far away is the next bad fire season and what can we do in the short term to try and fix that? Great question. I don't think it's going to be this year unless it suddenly stops raining, but all of the major climate drivers, the Indian Ocean Dipole, the absence of El Nino, southern annular mode, winds around Antarctica, south of Australia, they're all pointing to a fairly normal fire season. The trouble is a normal fire season now is like a fairly bad fire season mm. in the 1960s. So we'll get individual days where there'll be total fire bans There'll be heat waves and that will drive fires, but not a summer of fires, months and months of bad weather. It could come back next year or the year after. You just don't know, but it it won't be 10 years away. The fires will come and we need to take climate action on behalf of future generations to try and, you know, that scenario of 2040 and 2060, we can do something about that and we must. That's a moral obligation. That was Greg Mullins, former Commissioner of New South Wales Fire and Rescue Service. 
Fascinating and scary interview, Annika. You can read more about it in his book called Firestorm, which is out now just in time for a Christmas present, although I imagine it would be pretty uncomfortable reading over the Australian summer. Yeah, it was one of the things that was at the forefront of our mind only a couple of years ago before COVID hit, so uncomfortable but maybe necessary reading this summer. Definitely. Tomorrow on The Briefing, a mysterious disappearance in the outback town of Larimer. Listener.